Welcome back, friends. Another episode of You Make Me Sick, uh, continuing our herpes series. So we did Epstein-Barr last time, uh, and this time we are going to take a look at herpes simplex virus 1. I was going to do 1 and 2 together, but there's actually enough information, I think, for both of them. 2 kind of deserves its own episode anyway, because it's more... I guess from a public health realm, probably more important than herpes simplex 1, uh, more commonly seen anyway, and more associated anyway with, uh, as far as a sexually transmitted disease. So uh, we will do the herpes simplex 1 today. shouldn't be a super long episode, uh, so we'll kind of jump right in. Uh, as I stated before, we're now on Twitter, so if anybody wants to jump on there and throw suggestions out, please do. Also been posting uh, relevant uh articles just related to infectious disease there's a few on there that i threw in there about uh, the egg they don't say egg shortage but egg prices being so high there's a lot of conspiracy theorists out there uh, that are kind of suspect as far as uh, egg prices and why they are so high a lot of it has to do with the avian flu but there are other factors as well there's gas prices chicken feed prices labor costs it mentions it in one of the articles i posted but uh, even Congress is now getting involved. They want to launch some kind of an investigation to make sure that there isn't price gouging, which I'm fine with that. Go for it. I think at the end of the day, they'll probably find that the prices that they're charging are justified, but uh, we'll, we'll see. So anyway, uh, we will move on. Let's do uh, herpes simplex one. So just as a kind of little history lesson right here, herpes simplex one and two, uh, they share a lot in common. But uh, there's actually, uh, there was a study that came out a while ago, I think it was University of California, San Diego, and researchers were able to actually track it back as far as 1.6 million years ago, back to Homo erectus. Uh, prior to that, it was thought that they were actually ancient chimpanzees, kind of ancestors of modern humans. Uh, they had the virus as well, and it jumped from them to Homo erectus. So they, they believe there's evidence of this going back before, you know, long before civilization and long before, you know, there was even human beings as, as we know it as uh, Homo sapiens, which I think is like 200,000 years ago. So been around for a really long time. So herpes simplex virus one. Uh, it's a member of the alpha herpes viridae subfamily. Uh, it's structure, it's a double-stranded DNA. It's got a spiky envelope. As far as its pathogenesis, it usually follows a cycle of primary infection, and this happens on epithelial cells. So uh, latency primarily, there's a latency period after that, and that affects neurons. I'll talk about this in a little while, just how it kind of evades uh, the immune response and where it hides, but it has to do with, uh, with neurons and getting into dorsal root ganglia. And from there, it can actually reactivate. So that's why, as anybody who's ever had a cold sore knows, you'll probably get another one or have had more than one. So herpes simplex 1 uh, establishes in the primary infection these recurrent vesicular eruptions. That's the lesions, cold sores. Those are things that you'll see. Primarily, they happen around the mouth, but can also happen in the genitalia. Uh, there's also a few other types of herpes simplex virus 1 uh, infections that we'll talk about that can affect other parts of the body too. Uh, does have a wide presentation uh, as far as how it affects the body. You have the oral herpes, 
Um, you can have a herpetic folliculitis, and you see this a lot with men with beards sometimes, uh, and it actually happens by razor blades. Uh, if you have one area that is, you know, has a herpes virus and you have a razor blade, you can actually spread that. Uh, there's another form of herpes called herpes gladiatorium. Uh, this is a skin infection as well. Uh, herpes gladiatorium, it's also called mat herpes uh, because it mostly infects wrestlers and other people who have oh, yeah! contact sports, any kind of athletes who do contact sports, so MMA, boxing, uh, wrestling. Uh, it's pretty much shared by skin-to-skin -skin contact with these people, and that's how it's spread. There's another herpes simplex one uh, presentation called herpetic whitlow, W-H-I-T-L-O-W. Uh, this is where you get, uh, this affects mainly the fingers, the digits. So you get swelling and pain in your finger. Uh, you can also get blisters and sores on your finger. Skin becomes red or discolored. Uh, there's ocular herpes infection, which can actually cause blindness. And then there's herpes encephalitis, which can actually be pretty dangerous. So herpes encephalitis can be fatal in up to about 70% of cases if not treated. And I'll get into that a little bit as well. Uh, it should be mentioned though, about 90% of the herpes uh, encephalitis cases in adults and children are due to herpes simplex 1. There is about 10% that is associated with herpes simplex 2. Uh, this is usually in neonates, and this is after you have a vaginal birth with somebody who has uh, herpes infection, uh, and that's how it's kind of passed along to, to neonates. I'll touch on that a little bit as well. Uh, it can also uh, happen, it can also infect uh, immunocompromised patients as well. So people who have uh, transplants, uh, HIV infections, a little more susceptible uh, to the herpes encephalitis as well, just because their immune system is already compromised. So, so how does herpes spread? Herpes simplex 1 anyway. Uh, typically it's through direct contact with contaminated saliva or some other infected bodily secretion, uh, as opposed to herpes simplex 2 which is just spread through sexual contact. So that's kind of how they, they designate those two. Uh, herpes simplex 1 can be saliva, bodily secretions. Herpes simplex 2 is just through sexual contact. A little bit of pathology about it. Herpes simplex 1. So it, uh, the virus gets in, it replicates at the site of infection, and then it's actually able to migrate down these nerve cells. So as I was saying before, that you know, initial kind of contact with those epithelial cells, that's where it kind of gets in there, hijacks the DNA, uh, starts reproducing. Uh, once it's in those cells, so it migrates down the nerve cells to the dorsal root ganglia. So a dorsal root ganglion or dorsal root ganglia anatomically these are actually, they're kind of nerve pathways, and they emerge from spinal nerves, and they kind of go up, uh, and they're, they're almost like sensory carrying. They carry messages from the skin or other parts of the body, uh, pain, temperature, things like that. Uh, and since, obviously, herpes, it uh, affects the epithelial cells, so the outer cells, uh, and that's where we are able to sense pain and heat and all that fun stuff. So... Uh, travels down through there uh, to your dorsal root ganglia and then once in the dorsal root ganglia it actually establishes latency and that's kind of where it hides out. Uh, latency periods usually allows the virus to remain non-infectious for variable, very variable, <laughs> variable amounts of time. It depends, as I stated, I don't know if anybody listened to Epstein-Barr, Epstein-Barr reoccurs as well. Uh, herpes just kind of rears its ugly head with Epstein-Barr, it can be anything just from, uh, you know, a severe illness or some other kind of traumatic, you know, injury. 
Uh, same thing with herpes simplex 1. Uh, what causes it, sometimes when your immune system is compromised, uh, herpes simplex 1 reactivates and you end up seeing those signs and symptoms from it as well. So how does herpes evade the immune system, right? Why can't our immune system do anything about this? So it's got a few different mechanisms that actually helps downregulate the immunological response. Uh, one of them is actually by taking special cells. There are these molecules called CD10 molecules. And these are normally in these antigen-presenting cells. So antigen-presenting cells will kind of pop up when there's a foreign invader. These and these CD10 molecules will actually signal other cells called natural killer T cells. Pretty cool name, right? So these immune cells, the natural killer T cells, usually help to fight off these foreign invaders. They're a pretty important part of our immune system. But what herpes does, it kind of consolidates these CD10 molecules and doesn't allow them to actually present on the outside of these antigen cells to activate the CD, sorry, to activate the natural killer cells. So by doing that, it uh, doesn't cause an immune response and the herpes virus is able to just kind of survive uh, without actually being attacked. Uh, there's a few other mechanisms that are similar to that as well that just help herpes just kind of evade our immune system. So, Herpes, when it first establishes your primary infection, um, most people uh, don't have antibodies to herpes 1 or herpes 2, obviously, with the primary infection, hence the name primary infection. And then reactivation, usually after reactivation, once you've had that primary infection, the following reactivation or reoccurrence isn't normally as severe. You don't have uh, as bad, the symptoms aren't quite as bad, they don't last quite as long. And it's usually just an asymptomatic viral shedding. Interestingly enough, it, it is thought that about one-third of the world's population has experienced some kind of symptomatic herpes simplex 1 exposure or you know, have had the virus at some point in time throughout their life. So a, a huge amount. It was like with Epstein-Barr. You know, like once people reach adulthood, it's about 85 to 90 percent of the world's population have probably come in contact with it. So it's out there, it's around, most people have had to deal with it. Uh, if you've never had a cold sore, you're lucky. They're, I don't know. It's nothing you know, super serious, but we're, uh, you know, at least in the United States, a uh, very self-conscious society, and there, you know, there's definitely stigma associated with cold sores. So uh, women who have recurrent genital herpes uh, sometimes can transmit that to their newborns. It's not super, super common. Um, it's relatively low risk for vertically transmitting herpes simplex virus to their neonate. Uh, it is approximately about 1 in 1,000 newborns, though, do have a neonatal herpes simplex viral infection, at least in the United States. So, I mean, 1 in 1,000, it's not an extremely high number, but it's not really low either. So it's you know, relatively common. Uh, risk factors, we'll talk about those as well. So risk factors, I'll kind of go through uh, a few of the, the different types of the herpes simplex infections, the gladiatorium and the Whitlow and, and all that stuff. And we'll talk about risk factors for it too. Uh, in the case of the, the oral herpes, obviously, risk factors you can look at sharing any kind of uh, you know, food or drink with somebody who has a herpes infection, obviously swapping spit with them, uh, any kind of shared drinkware, cosmetics even uh, can cause that if you're sharing lipstick or lip balm or, or some chapsticks. 
risk factors for the herpes gladiatorium. Obviously, this is, uh, you know, mostly seen in high contact sports. So if you're an athlete and you're going to be up close and friendly with somebody, if you're doing rugby or if you're doing wrestling or MMA or boxing, any of that stuff, there's a chance that you might end up with herpes gladiatorium. And I think some of the same symptoms, signs and symptoms of these can get confused sometimes with bacterial kind of uh, skin infections as well. So uh, if they give you antibiotics and it doesn't go away, it might be a viral thing, even though they usually are self-limiting and go away on their own. Risk factors for herpetic whitlow. Uh, these are actually a lot of times seen in younger children. So uh, this is associated with thumb sucking and nail biting in the younger children. Obviously, if they have a herpes infection around the mouth and they start putting their fingers and stuff all over it, uh, they can cross-contaminate. In adults, it's usually seen in the medical and dental profession, which I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, it's, it sounds gross, but I see even, you know, as an ICU nurse, sometimes physicians go in without gloves and are all over our patients touching them. And it, it's kind of disgusting. Like there's a, a best practice is to always glove up before doing any kind of an assessment on a patient, but it does happen. Dental profession seems even more, I mean, I guess if you're touching tools, uh, you, you know, that who knows, maybe you think they're clean, maybe they haven't been, I don't know. Either way, I, I would wear gloves no matter what in any of those scenarios, but uh, some people don't, so. For uh, herpes encephalitis, uh, the most common risk factor is actually a mutation in a cell called a toll-like receptor cell as well as a certain cell called a UNC93B gene. I guess these are genes, not necessarily cells. Uh, it has been theorized that mutations in these specific genes actually inhibit normal immune responses, which allow for the uh, herpes encephalitis to occur. Whereas if you had normally regulated genes, you might not see it happen. For the ocular herpes infection, this can occur with anybody who has a current herpes infection and touches any part of their eye, their conjunctiva, uh, or the lens itself. If you're replacing contact lenses and you don't have clean hands, you could contaminate it that way. So it's uh, definitely able to spread to the eyeball, and it can cause blindness. I'll talk about that a little bit here coming right up. As I mentioned before, anybody who's immunocompromised has a higher risk of getting a chronic herpes simplex infection. These, once again, would be solid transplant recipients, people who are on immunosuppressant drugs, uh, HIV infections, and uh, certain types of cancer patients too, like leukemia and lymphoma patients. It should be important to note too that with uh, herpes encephalitis, it's actually the leading cause of encephalitic deaths in the United States. And that the ocular herpes virus, uh, it's common cause of blindness in the United States as well. So even though we're, you know, probably the best healthcare in the world, these uh, herpes is still, herpes simplex one is still causing deaths and blindness in this country. It's, you know, pretty crazy to think. So as far as symptoms, do I have herpes? I don't know. What would it look like? So usually the most common manifestation, as I said, is a cold store, the fever blister. With children, it can be a lot worse, kind of present as a, a gingo... It's a gingivostomatitis. Ugh. So it's a essentially affection of the mouth and the oral cavity. 
Uh, it can lead to pain, get halitosis, a bad breath, and they can also have trouble swallowing with it too because it's so painful. In adults, it can kind of present as a, a pharyngitis or a mononucleosis-like symptoms as well. Uh, primary infection usually only lasts, so it happens after, sorry, it occurs about three days to one week after exposure. Uh, patients usually start to experience some malaise. Uh, you can have anorexia, so you really don't want to eat. You can get a fever. There can be a little bit of lymph node involvement as well, a little bit of localized pain. Can be some burning or tingling prior to the onset of any of these cold sores. But after about two to six weeks after this primary infection, anything where there was a lesion or a cold sore, it crusts over and then the symptoms resolve and then it goes in that latency period. People who do have these recurrent oral infections, uh, the second time around, as I mentioned before, it's usually a bit milder. Usually you have about 24 hours of kind of tingling and burning and itch, but the symptoms resolve after that. So you don't have such a long period once your body has actually been able to maybe hopefully create some antibodies for it. Usually with the recurrence as well, you'll just see around the border of the lip is where it usually happens. You can have also, as I mentioned before, that uh, herpes folliculitis. Uh, usually a lot of times it affects men who have a beard and do like close razor blade shaving. And lesions there, uh, same type of thing. They can last for about two to three weeks and then usually resolve after that. But that can also be a little bit painful for them as well. Uh, if you're one of these guys who does the, the wrestling or the MMA, the herpes gladiatorium, that'll actually show up on the lateral neck or the side of the face. You'll see it on the forearms. This will show up about four to 11 days after exposure. So it might be a few days after a wrestling match or a boxing match. And this is usually, it can be, like I said, misdiagnosed as a bacterial folliculitis. So if you're somebody who does this as a profession or even just recreationally, you start to see kind of strange looking crusty lesions and stuff. You may want to get it checked out because you can get antivirals as opposed to antibiotics. If it's back, you know, if it's viral and they give you antibiotics, it's probably not going to do anything for it. So you might need an antiviral instead. With a herpetic Whitlow, as I mentioned before, this pretty much happens to the digits on your fingers. So you'll see deep blisters. Some of them may actually erode a little bit. This can also spread to the lymph nodes. Uh, you might see a little lymph node swelling and lymph streaking in these, especially in the, the axilla, so around the armpits. Um, but not always associated with this. As far as the infection of the eye, so if you're, uh, your eye, you'll kind of get a conjunctivitis, uh, and it can either happen in one or both eyes. Uh, usually, I mean, it, usually unilateral, especially the reoccurring cases of ocular herpes, but can happen to both eyes. You'll get eyelid tearing, uh, some swelling, you'll have photophobia, so sensitivity to light. You can also get swelling with the conjunctiva as well. Uh, as I stated, stated before, the ocular herpes simplex virus is a very common cause. I say very common cause. It's a common cause of blindness in the U.S. And it actually manifests as a corneal ulceration. So pretty nasty. With the herpes encephalitis, if you have somebody who has this, the kind of the signs and symptoms of this, um, as I said, it's about a 70% mortality rate if it's not treated. It usually affects the temporal lobe of the brain and this leads to really bizarre behavior. You can have altered mental status, uh, can lead to seizures, kind of neurological deficits uh, localized from the temporal lobe. So pretty serious stuff if you get a herpes encephalitis. Uh, neonate herpes virus 
So if you have someone who gives uh, vaginal birth and they have herpes simplex virus and they pass it on to the child, this usually presents like five days to two weeks after birth. Uh, typically, it affects the scalp and the trunk. Uh, you know, passageway through the, excuse me, during birth. And this can also, it mainly presents here, but it can be disseminated. So it can kind of spread throughout other parts of the body. And you can have these cutaneous lesions. And uh, can also involve the oral mucosa. As far as central nervous system involvement with the encephalitis, um, you'll, I, this is regarding children. So a lot of neonates, once they, they'll have a systemic herpes infection. So you will get central nervous system involvement with these infections. Uh, these manifest as an encephalitis. You'll have poor, like poor feeding. They'll be lethargic. They also have bulging for their fontanelle on their head. So when kids are first born, their heads aren't. They still have a soft area on their head. It doesn't fully form. You might see that bulging with the encephalitis, just the swelling from the brain. Uh, they can be irritable, and this can also cause seizures in them as well. Uh, signs and symptoms in immunocompromised people, uh, you'll probably see the same signs and symptoms mostly that we talked about above. Uh, this can happen, you know, as an acute or a chronic infection in these types of populations. But uh, herpes simplex infection, it's usually designated by these lesions and ulcerations that you find on people. Uh, it's also not uncommon, I guess, in these immunocompromised patients to have respiratory and GI involvement as well, which can sometimes lead to difficulty breathing and swallowing. So you think about it, if you have no immune response anywhere in your body and you get any infection, it uh, can certainly affect all systems. So. so what happens if you think you have the herpes? How do you get diagnosed? So the gold standard is still just serological testing. So you can go in, there's a technique called uh, Western blot and it's an antibody detection, uh, and that is one of the, it's a gold standard for it. The best way, the most sensitive way to detect it is through polymerase chain reaction. Uh, I don't know if all labs, if that would be what they would do first, or if they would just do the, they'd probably just do the Western blot to see if you have the antibody for it and go from there. Uh, you can also do a viral culture, uh, which is a direct fluorescent antibody assay or DFA, that can also determine if you have herpes simplex, at least type 1. Uh, and there's also something called a, a Zank smear, T-Z-A-N-C-K smear, which is an alternative method. Uh, so there's, you know, multiple ways. Uh, like I said, they probably just do the serological testing. It seems to be the gold standard. Unless there was thought that, you know, it was a differential for something else, and then they do the PCR, so you can get an absolute confirmation on what it was. So what about treatment? The treatment for the oral herpes. Uh, you know, 25, 30 years ago there was no treatment, but uh, today we have some pretty effective medications. Uh, most commonly, it's uh, oral val valacyclovir, uh, which you get about two grams a day, a day, sorry, two, two grams twice a day, <laughs> each day. Uh, that's for the treatment of oral herpes. If you have someone who has frequent outbreaks, kind of a recurrent or chronic uh, herpes, uh, you could treat that with the uh, oral valacyclovir, but it's 500 milligrams daily. And that's if you have someone who has less than 10 outbreaks a year. But if you have someone who has even more than that, uh, more than 10 a year, they'll give you like one gram of the oral valacyclovir uh, daily. So it can be treated. Uh, if you have any 
you know, skin condition related to the, the herpes and eczema herpeticum, as they call them. They'll usually give you uh, about two weeks of uh, acyclovir, which is another antiviral. Uh, and you'll have uh, three to five times a day of valcyclovir, uh, one gram usually. So uh, for chronic suppression, if you have somebody who's immunocompromised, uh, they'll do the oral acyclovir two to three times a day, and they'll do valcyclovir uh, twice a day as well. Or oral valcyclovir, not both, uh, one or the other. Uh, but overall, most herpes simplex virus one, uh, these infections, they're asymptomatic. Uh, it's they're self-limiting for what it is. You don't need medication for them. They resolve on their own. Um, prognosis obviously is usually pretty good unless you have one of these serious conditions that you get from it. Uh, the the ocular, the encephalitis, or if you're immunocompromised, uh, can be a real issue. Because like I said, the encephalopathy is a pretty serious high mortality, 70% uh, if untreated. So um, even though it's there isn't a, a lot of information, I couldn't find a lot of data on the exact incidence of the encephalitis, but it's estimated that uh, there's about one case per million per year. So it, the could be an underestimate though if you think about because uh, as it is right now there's 2,000 cases that occur annually in the United States so that definitely would be a, an underestimate if you're thinking if there's 330 million people in the United States then there should only about be about 330 cases per year but there's 2,000 each year in the United States so probably an underestimate there. As far as the ocular version uh, it's it can cause blindness like I said uh, it is treatable but uh, if you have a patient who has what they call a globe rupture or some kind of corneal scarring, it can lead to permanent damage. So, so that's kind of the herpes simplex virus one. Uh, let's do our death count. So I did not think that I would be able to do a death count with herpes simplex virus one. I thought it primarily just caused uh, cold sores and that was about it. But uh, with the information that we have about the herpes encephalitis and that it's caused by herpes simplex virus 1, I was actually able to, to do a pretty, uh, pretty impressive death count here. So we will uh, we'll take our dead caused by herpes simplex virus 1 and as we always do we will we'll see how many we have to stack head to toe if we can get to the moon. Uh, we'll see how many times we can reach the top of the Empire State Building and we'll see if we can wrap our dead around the earth. So, I'll take the data that we have, uh, the information where one, one per one million for the herpes encephalitis. We'll take the current population of the world, which is 7.88 billion. So we divide that by one million, we get 7,888 7, deaths per year. And then I'll multiply that by 10,000. So herpes has been around for a long time, before there were technically even, you know, humans being humans. This is this goes back to, you know, Homo erectus or whatever it was. So it's not even human, Homo sapiens. So long time. So, uh, but 10,000 years, that's about the, the length of civilized societies as we know it. So we're being able to spread this stuff more commonly. So that's what I'm going to take for my years, 10,000 years. So 10,000 years multiplied by 7,880 deaths. Uh, we get a total of 7,880,000 deaths. So if we take our average height, five foot five inches, we multiply that by our seven million eight hundred and eighty thousand, 
and we get a total of 394,400,000 feet or 74,697 miles. All right, you got that? All right, so we're trying to get to the moon. The moon is 238,000, try that again, 238,900 miles away, right? So if we were to stack our dead head to toe, we could actually get about 31% of the way there with our 74,000 miles of, of corpses. Uh, if we want to stack our dead to reach the top of the Empire State Building, uh, that's at 1,454 feet. We could, actually, we could actually reach the top of the Empire State Building 27,125 times. So that's a, that's a lot, uh, lot of dead people going to the top of the Empire State Building to wave to all the New Yorkers. And if we wanted to circle the Earth, uh, which has a circumference of 24,901 miles, we could actually wrap our dead around the Earth almost exactly three times. So it's a lot, a lot more than I thought would be from herpes simplex one. I did not think it to be, you know, a cause of death, but it just goes to show you kind of a point uh, that I try to make with, uh, with our little death count here is that these microorganisms, as harmless as they may seem, can actually be relatively fatal depending who they infect and how they infect you. So it's, uh, it's something I know it's, uh, I, I try to add a little levity or I, I know it's kind of morbid and some people probably think it's kind of macabre, but uh, the point is that uh, it, these diseases, even though they may not seem incredibly pathogenic, can still kill you uh, and still cause a lot of death and have over time. So well, that's what I got for the herpes simplex one. Uh, I will do herpes simplex two next. I'm not sure when I'm gonna post that. Gotta do more research and then uh, get all my ducks in a row. But uh, I'll come out with that one. That one, as I said, that's more of a public health, uh, sexually transmitted disease-centered uh, kind of pathogen uh, microorganism. So maybe a little more interesting. I don't know. Uh, like I said, anybody wants to hear something else, please let me know uh, on Twitter. Uh, Make me sick pod. You can reach me there, or you can reach me by email, uh, youmakemesickpod at gmail.com. Always uh, looking for feedback or suggestions. So uh, I appreciate everybody uh, for listening. And uh, I am hoping that uh, within... I'm trying to do more episodes this year than I did at least more frequently. I'd like to do at least two to three a month. We'll see, you know, exactly how, how many I'm able to get done. But, uh, oh, and I also wanted to give a shout out to, uh, to Amy Tibbetts Carlo, who is currently my only follower on Twitter, which is fine. I'm not really doing this for any kind of, uh, social media gratification. It's just an easier way for me to get information out. And, uh, since I don't post a podcast super frequently I can kind of throw things out there that are just kind of interesting with regard to infectious disease and and current events as well that involve those those types of subjects so anyway hope you guys enjoyed this episode let me know if there's anything else uh, you want to hear and always uh, or as always don't forget to wash your hands Been crying? Oh my, my lip. Uh, it's cold sore. Never had one before, so uh, start to cry.